So uh, hello everyone and thank you so much for being here and participating in our third podcast for the Resilience Research Group which focuses on individual level resilience and COVID. So to start could you please uh, briefly introduce yourselves and your occupation and field for the listeners. Uh, I'm Dr Jennifer McGowan, I'm a lecturer at UCL and founder of the RRG. My research is on resilience in relation to health psychology. Um, I'm Joe Boyden, Professor Emerita of International Development from the University of Oxford and former director of Young Lives. Um, my research focuses mostly on children and young people who've been exposed to very extreme circumstances. My name is uh, Shaul Kimhi. I'm full professor at Tel Hai uh, College in Israel. Uh, my expertise in my research uh, is are around the issues of uh, resilience, including individual, community, and national resilience. Thank you. It's great to hear from you all, and thank you for being here. So today we're going to talk about how resilience relates to COVID, which is something that has been on everyone's mind for over a year now. So I'd like to start with some wider questions about uh, COVID and resilience, and in particular, really get into for the audience how resilience is related to COVID, because they seem like two such different things. So would anyone like to tell me a little bit about, from your perspective, how does resilience relate to COVID? In my opinion, COVID uh, resilience or individual resilience relate to any kind of disaster or adversity and there are some changes between the different adversities but resilience is having a very important role in each or different uh, crisis. Uh, I would say that resilience is a concept that help us to differentiate between different people, abilities, or variety, or how they deal with crisis, and not less important, how well they are recovering from a disaster. So can I just pick up on this? Um, I think I would agree entirely. Um, you don't necessarily, when you're thinking of resilience, you don't necessarily specify a particular set of circumstances as having particular responses. But I think where you have an overwhelming um, and really extreme experience, such as the COVID pandemic, then you look to see what it is about some individuals that are better able to cope than others. And I think one of the features of COVID that is so serious is it co-occurs with other stressors. So it's both a health um, and a mortality emergency on the one hand, but it's an economic crisis on the other because it's brought about terrible economic impacts on families and individuals and communities. And I think it's that co-occurrence of COVID, the pandemic, along with the economic impacts that is so debilitating for individuals and so difficult to um, deal with. 
And I think in the research that we've done in Young Lives, um, which has been actually going on for 20 years, what's so tragic is that we've been following 12,000 children um, in four countries, Ethiopia, India, Peru, and Vietnam. And what we found is that the families that already had great challenges, that were already struggling economically, that already had insecure livelihoods, were the ones where individual children were much more likely to be suffering the consequences of the pandemic. So for those it's almost as if the, the resilience of the families and the individuals becomes overwhelmed when you've got these long-term, um, you know, long-term economic problems exacerbated by this emergent and immediate crisis that is the pandemic. Uh, in Israel, we compared four different uh, threats along the COVID. The health threat, the economic threat, political threat, and security. Uh, we were a little bit uh, surprised that in Israel, the most threatening uh, threat was the political conflict much before the uh, health. The second one, severity, uh, threat was economic, only the third one was the health, and the last one was the security. So it's very much uh, shows how complicated this uh, threat of the COVID was. And that actually resonates very well with research that I've done in the past, which tends to imply that we, we always assume that the most immediate extreme crisis, such as conflict, violence, um, pandemic or whatever, is the most severe threat to people. But actually, it's often the ongoing structural circumstances, be they political, be they economic, um, that really render people vulnerable. And I think in many situations where you have very fa vulnerable families and individuals, it takes an exceptional individual to be resilient and, and to overcome. It's very easy for people not to be able to overcome these, these, these sort of circumstances. Turning a little bit ahead, I would say that one of the research we have done with a professor from Columbia University, Professor Bonanno, we have measured how many people are suffering high level of distress symptoms along the COVID. And we found that it's a, it's a, a results were very similar to other research that shows that overall about 70% of the population were what we would call resilient, low level of uh, distress symptoms all along the measures. About, and about, let's say 20% were what, what uh, researchers are called chronic uh, group, which is the most uh, worried uh, people and what are, has to worry us. And there were two small uh, groups that were in the middle and changed along the time. So it's a, it's, 
it's possible to see what, we, what I prefer to call the half empty and the full empty glass. The full empty was at between 70 or 80%, depends how long you measure. 70 to 80% of the people are doing well. Even though it's a, it's a big and very serious uh, threat. The elf half empty uh, glass is at about 20% of the people are having high level of distress. And if I take, let's say even half of them need a help, it's an overwhelming number of people. If you take a million people in a medium-sized uh, city, means a hundred thousand people who needs help. And I'm not sure if any city, this is just an example, of course, if any uh, city in the world is having the resources uh, to do something seriously, how to help the population, especially when it's not one city and it's, but it's all over the country. Still 70% of the population being, being highly resilient is, is quite a large number, especially compared to, to some studies. Yes, and it's, it's interesting because maybe we can think of it as an, uh, something that's happened at, during different uh, disasters and across cultures. So maybe it's a universal uh, phenomena. Of course, we need more research, but our results were exactly like this other uh, researcher, and the numbers were very similar, even though their research was not around uh, COVID. And I would completely confirm that. In fact, uh, having worked in very extreme situations of armed conflict and, and displacement, I've been really surprised at the level of resilience in, in the general population. And you kind of go into it assuming that something like com armed conflict, for instance, is so, or pandemic is so extreme that it will be very destructive of a very high proportion of the population. But I do think it's incredibly important that there are networks and systems and support protective mechanisms in place and I think I mean I think we've we've noticed that in many countries in the world government and government services have been inadequate to the task but what I've been very struck by in many contexts is the extent to which civil society organizations and not even organizations just neighborhood groups, citizen groups, people who have spontaneously um, rallied to support each other. And that's where I think a lot of the strength really does come from, that individuals derive their strength from some of these spontaneous acts of acts of kindness, um, acts of empathy, um, and acts of sort of community and, and reaching out to, to community. This is incredibly important. And, and I think in the pandemic, maybe in many contexts, it's been people have felt better able to express those kinds of 
um, supports um, because it doesn't it isn't a political it doesn't originate in a political conflict this pandemic it it's it doesn't carry political connotations in 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 the same way that that conflict does so communities can reach out to each other and build trust because there isn't the suspicion and anxiety about um, other populations, you know, that they're in conflict with. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense. Maybe in the Israeli context, it's a bit different, but certainly in the UK and in um, what we, from what we've seen in Peru and Vietnam and um, India and Ethiopia. I would add to this that the major difference we found between the COVID or the pandemic and other uh, crisis in Israel, it's mainly a uh, security, war, or terror crisis, is the fact that during the COVID, the uh, level of help by your neighbors or by your community was much lower due to the fact that people has to keep uh, distance. Yeah. And th this is the first time or the first disaster we saw that the uh, role of community resilience was not as important as much as we found it uh, during other uh, crises. For example, I just finished last uh, week the first comparison between the COVID and the longitudinal with the same people uh, during the last uh, round of uh, terror around the Gaza Strip. And uh, what we found is that uh, the level of distress, sense of danger was much, was uh, it was lower, significantly lower compared to the COVID. And the level of resilience was significantly higher. Overall, I would say that the crisis of the pandemic was the worst if you compare it to a security crisis in Israel. And this is the first time we found it because we didn't have chance to do such a comparison before. And that's, that's an astounding finding that um, mm -hmm. people are actually coping worse with COVID than they are with, with armed conflict uh, in your country. So how do you think, um, you've mentioned that it might, it might be because people don't have that social support going on in COVID because you can't see each other, you can't physically be there and, and touch and look after each other. Is there anything else that you feel that COVID may have done that would impact resilience either positively or negatively? Uh, I think so, because it's not only the level of community resilience. Individual resilience during the COVID was much lower or significantly lower compared to earlier or even the last uh, uh, crisis regarding uh, security. Moreover, the most significant change was national resilience. I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but national resilience was significantly lower during the COVID. And when I measured it, measure it two weeks ago, it's very close to the COVID. It's already rise up significantly. So why do you think individual level resilience is lower over COVID? We can estimate or uh, having hypothesis. It's not easy to say exactly why. We think that 
couple of uh, factors contribute to this phen phenomena. I think that uh, the majority of uh, people in Israel thought that the management of the pandemic was not good at all, or what was bad compared to earlier or later crisis. People felt that they don't, cannot count on their prime minister and the ministry and the way they, they handle it was for most people or for many of them was not good. The second thing was the fact that people felt that much of the event, the, the number of people that died, the number of situations in the hospital, is nothing, it's out of their uh, ability to uh, manage it. It's not up to us. It's something that it comes from the outside and it's not under uh, our under, uh, own control. And I think that when people feel that they don't have good control, they lose a lot of their level of belief and their hope. We measure things like hope, uh, for example, among people, and level of hope was much lower compared to other uh, uh, adversities. We, uh, we measure a level of uh, a level of unity. People felt that they are less unit. They don't have control. They, they report that their well-being was lower. So we have many indicators showing that uh, what was the results of the COVID. It's not only one. It's, you can see it by many other different measures. Each of them can be used as an indicator for coping or for resilience. We have to remember resilience is a theoretical concept. We use it because it's a good one, help us to explain things and to predict, but it's a theoretical concept. And uh, for most or many people, especially politicians in the last uh, three years or two years, especially since the COVID started, when they use the word uh, resilience, they mean only strong. And they don't use the other part of it, which is recovery. It's not at one certain point. If we are resilient, mean we can cope a long time. I think this issue of control and the feeling that you have a role in your own recovery is absolutely fundamental. And I, I do agree that, that when people are in isolation from each other, when, when their governments are, are sort of passing edicts that you know, they must comply with in order to protect themselves and, and their neighbors and so on, it becomes very difficult to imagine 
the space that you can have control in. But I do also feel that in many contexts, and it may be different in Israel, but I think in many contexts where people have basically just taken control because they've had no choice, because they've not necessarily felt government is managing the, the situation well. And I've been very struck by the very creative ways in which people have um, families and, and neighbours, and maybe neighbours in particular, because even if you're not allowed to leave your space, they can, they talk to each other. Um, you know, I, I've, I've come across a lot of examples of people creating their own means of communication with each other, their own means of support. Um, and I think that's also very important. So it's very informal. It's not necessarily got much longevity. Um, but it is meaningful and it's given people some sense that they're making, they're, they're playing a part, they're, they're making their own contribution. I think where it's become very, very, very difficult and challenging um, in all four of the country contexts that I know most about is where um, the re basic resources are not there, even if you're fighting to find them. So oxygen, shortages of oxygen have, have left families bereft. They've been searching, they've been going on the internet, they've been trying to purchase the basic um, resources that are not available in hospitals to keep loved ones alive. And I think that's where resilience really does break down because the, because the government hasn't, in most contexts, governments haven't provided the infrastructure and, and so on. Although in the context of the Young Lives research, Vietnam, at least until recently, was a country where the government really did have a systematic policy. They really did have a, a response that was very effective to COVID. Um, it made a huge difference to the impact on individuals. And we can see that the countries like Peru and India, where COVID has been much more devastating nationally, community level, family level, and so on, the impacts on individuals have been far, far more devastating. Children not attending school, becoming very depressed, very despondent, losing a lot of their social skills, for example, um, because they've not been in contact with other children. Whereas in Vietnam, where the rates of COVID have been much lower, the impact has still been quite strong economically, but not so much in the social and the psychological way that it has been in more affected countries. So you've both mentioned that um, the, the structural support needs to be there, especially over COVID, but presumably generally as well, in order for people to, to maintain or develop their resilience. So you need the actual resources in order to be resilient in the first place. And you've mentioned that COVID can um, reduce resilience due to a lack of feelings of control on top of the health uh, problems and any stresses people might have been experiencing previously. But you said something kind of interesting there, Joe, which is you said that you've seen that although at a governmental level, the structural support might not be there, you've seen people coming together in different ways to develop their own support. So is there anything that's happened over COVID that you've seen in your research where resilience may actually have been improved due to COVID? I would, I would think it's probably too soon to say that individual resilience has been improved because I think from my point of view, resilience is very much a process that takes time to play out. And I think one of the things that we've noticed is that um, the situation, as it's kind of been ongoing, people who were initially stronger are not necessarily so resilient now as they were, say, a year ago. Um, so I would be very hesitant to say one way or the other, actually. 
um, I think we will see huge shifts in the way people choose to live, in the way they um, relate to each other, in the way they earn their incomes. All of that, I think, is going to change as a consequence of, of COVID. But I don't feel that we're yet able to predict very clearly what kind of outcomes you can expect from this pandemic. I mean, it's 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 a once in a lifetime, once in a, well, once in a century, if not more than one century experience. So I think it'd be dangerous to say now what we would, what we expect to see maybe five years from now. I think it's pretty clear already that, say, children of this, this the cohort of children growing up now um, will, will definitely have vulnerabilities that their older um, older cohorts will not have experienced, but we don't yet know. And I wouldn't even know whether, for example, from the point of view of children, whether it's more serious to have been experiencing and living through COVID as a one-year-old or as an eight-year-old or as a 15-year-old. Um, we're seeing very different impacts depending on children's ages and, and, and so on. So that's also, I think, a really important factor. I think it's become very clear that this was a, a disease of the elderly, but we should not assume that it is, you know, that it's not affected the young um, in, in all kinds of ways that we, I don't think we can still anticipate, but we are seeing examples of regressive behavior of, you know, loss of developmental momentum in, in, in young children, which I think is probably going to be quite long-term and it will impact their resilience longer term. If I may add to this, I haven't, uh, our team have not examined very young children. However, one of the research we have done during the COVID was a comparison between the general population and the students. And it, it was very interesting to, to see that students react worse compared to the general population. They are more distressed, means anxious or depressive uh, symptoms. They uh, reported lower level of resilience. They were blaming the, the government uh, handling the situation worse or more criticized compared to the general population. And overall, uh, it was a kind of sad picture to see that the group of students reported much lower level of coping compared to the general population. Continuing to this, I would say that we were surprised that the best reporting, according to reporting of the elderly people, 65 and above, were the most resilient group in Israel. They were less worried, they were less depressed, and they had a low, higher level of uh, resilience, including uh, national and uh, individual. If I also compare the level of the three resilient I mentioned, uh, individual, community, and national. The first three uh, measures were before there was a, a vaccination and situation got worse. So all three levels go down quite sharply. However, at the fourth uh, measurement, 
when Israel started to uh, use vac vaccination in a very intensive scale, while the national and the community resilience went up, clearly the individual level stayed almost the same, means low. And we found it very, not easy to explain it, why the other two raise up, but not the individual one. I think that that's a really interesting and important point, not least because Israel um, is one of the countries that's had the most successful, I mean, it is the country with the yeah. most successful vaccine rollout. Right. So that then raises the question, which goes back to your point, I think, Jennifer, early, what, well, what does it mean for people living in countries where there's still only 2% or maybe 5% of the population vaccinated, yeah. where the vaccines that they're accessing are actually being discredited in, in certain circles. So they're losing confidence in the only vaccines that are available to them and where they have no idea when they're going to get vaccinated. What will that do to hope and resilience and strength and so on? And I suspect that's why I would be hesitant to be making predictions about longer term outcomes, I suspect they will be very specific to particular country contexts and so on. And if there's a sense that your whole country is being lifted out of um, the pandemic earlier because more and more of you are vaccinated and you have herd immunity and so on, that must be very different for, for individuals than those individuals living in contexts where they have absolutely no idea and they don't have much confidence that the vaccines that they will have on offer will, you know, will actually help any, in any case. And they're also very fearful of the new variants and what this means if the vaccines that they do have access to can't protect them from those variants. So I think it becomes a very long term, complicated and very scary process, actually, for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh... I would add to this that uh, one comparison we did was uh, with two countries, uh, research team from Brazil and the Philippines. Uh, and we found it will be published soon. And we found uh, many differences between Israel, Philippines and Brazil. And it has to do a lot with uh, what you have said the vaccination and the number of people who are die or the situation in the hospital. But as a research a researcher, we found that the tools we used, of course, we have to translate them regarding the level, the different level of resilience, what we say call worked very nice in all three different uh, countries. And since we have used the same uh, tools, we can have a good comparison between completely different cultures. And something that uh, we will uh, continue, very interesting. And I think you mentioned something, I think which is, I, I would put in a, in a particular way, which is to do with spirituality and, um, a sense that there is a future and I think that's one of the the elements that we often underplay we often talk about um, cognitive 
competence. We often talk about personality traits. Some people have seemingly more resilient personality Le traits. Level of religiosity. Yes. A, a faith of, I mean, whether you call it religion specifically or something broader than, than a particular uh, religious doctrine, but certainly a belief, some kind of spiritual belief, some kind of a connection and a belief in life beyond and, and so on. I think that gives people a huge amount of, of confidence in these very insecure and frightening times. And I think for people who don't have that, um, especially if they've been isolated socially and through the procedures and the, and the policies of isolation that are necessary to protect them from the, the infection, I think that's a really, I think that's a really important dynamic in this whole thing you you know those who don't who are isolated and don't have that faith and don't have that confidence are necessarily um, more vulnerable um, because they don't necessarily have an explanation as to how you take yourself out of this what what the confidence and the faith that you get um, going forward in israel there was one factor that i doubt if at all, or if it's the same level of importance, was political attitudes. Israel may be the unique regarding this question because political attitudes was one of the major uh, predicting factor regarding many questions with this uh, pandemic. People who are uh, more right-wing uh, political attitudes, supporting the government more, reported higher level of uh, national resilience, reporter, reported higher level of hope, reported higher level of optimism. And this is just uh, a few of the other uh, uh, results we found. However, completely unexpected. We didn't find that level of religiosity change or made change between some of the uh, resilience, but I have to be careful because it's something we didn't analyze very, very important, very meticulously uh, so far. We'll have uh, results in the future. We thought that more religious people will be, will report higher level of resilience. And it wasn't exactly what we expected. So could it be, and I'm just going to throw this in there, could it be related to what we said earlier that people need a sense of, of control in order to be resilient over COVID? Could it be that, that being able to have a belief in something, whether it's yourself and your ability to avoid getting ill, whether it's your government and your community being there to protect you or even in, in a spiritual or religious way belief that there is some guiding force to this that gives people that that sense of control over the pandemic maybe it, it it's 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 a good explanation of course needs to have more support however i doubt if for example in england uh, political attitudes will be as much as important as in israel Maybe in the United States, it might be also very important because we are talking about divided societies. I don't think that uh, uh, political attitudes would be as much as important in Germany or in France. 
but it's a very good, uh, very good idea to examine it. I am honestly not sure if I agree with the argument that we have less divided society. Sadly, <laughs> I think I think we're all living in very divided societies, okay. and in, indeed, I mean. Amongst the people that I know, there's a great deal of criticism of the politicians and um, the, a great deal of anxiety that so much, so much unnecessary illness and so much unnecessary death has actually been caused by poor policies, poor decisions. And, and, and not actually only even that, but, but also in, in the UK, there's a lot of mention of the science and the evidence and the data but it's not a single science it's not a single set of evidence and it's not just one set of data and actually there have been disputes and debates within the scientific community ever since covid began on how best to respond and so even the scientists haven't necessarily had answers you know they've been they also have been learning along the way but i think i think there's a lot of concern that our politicians have let us down the one success story we really can claim is as as in israel is the vaccination program which has been very effective but we've had some really serious fa failures i think which which have affected people's morale terribly i think that's that's the point in terms of resilience. I don't think, I mean, I haven't measured it in the UK. I have no idea whether this is actually impacting individual resilience, but I know that there are a lot of narratives which point to the weakness of our political system, the failures to invest in our health infrastructure over many decades, and just how much that's made us all vulnerable, all of us, um, in ways that we, and, and there were warnings, there were predictions that we were told, you know, the medical community has known for 15, 20 years that this was going to happen. They didn't yeah. know which, which virus it was going to be, when it was going to hit, or, but they knew it was going to hit. Um, and we've just not been prepared. And I would hope that we will be more resilient as individuals in the future in the face of the inevitable return of both COVID and new diseases of, of this nature. I would hope that our preparedness will improve our resilience. And I don't mean just the preparedness of governments, but better information for, you know, if communities, better information for families, better information for individuals, and a greater sense that you can actually take action that will improve your control of the circumstances and so on. I think, I think that's preparedness will help everybody. Because time is moving on, I'm going to move on to one of our later questions now, which is essentially, um, I'd like you to, to tell me about your resilience research over COVID. So what have you done and, and what have you found? Talking, for example, about gender differences, it's interesting. On the one hand, as, as well as in earlier research, women tend to report higher level of stress. We found it in many uh, studies so far. It's almost a fact. However, reporting higher level of stress or distress doesn't mean that uh, women are less resilient, not at all. So it's kind of hard to explain it. On the one hand, women report higher level of, uh, of symptoms significantly higher level of uh, sense of danger, most, most uh, different as a, between men and women. Level of uh, anxiety, level of uh, 
depression. It's not, it's signs of uh, depression. It's not a depression uh, as a concept of, uh, you know, illness or something, symptoms. On the other hand, when you go to see community resilience, individual resilience, national resilience, it changed from time to time. It, we, go, we don't get the same trend difference between men and uh, women. For example, women reporting higher level in Israel of well-being. And it say, hey, you say you are more distressed. Why do you, you report higher level of well-being? This is one example why we should have a lot of research. Another trend of important uh, research is the uh, differences between age groups. The most vulnerable age group in Israel, putting aside the students, were the young parents between 30 and 40. These are the people who reported the higher level of distress, lower level of well-being higher level of sense of danger, etc., etc., lower level of national resilience. We think it has to do with the fact that these are the people who are having young children. Uh, again, this is only the beginning of more and more in-depth uh, research we should do. And I think one of the most important findings is, well, there are two major findings. One is that um, inequalities between children from different ethnic, religious, um, language and economic backgrounds have, have absolutely grown with COVID. But actually one of the more, even more um, tragic findings in a way is that um, Young Lives has been studying two age cohorts throughout the 20 years of the research, born seven years apart, um, starting in 2002. And consistently through the first five rounds of the study, the younger children fared better than the older ones on all the different indicators that, that were being assessed. So that's in relation to health, nutrition, um, it's in relation to a range of cognitive outcomes, psychosocial outcomes, time use, anything you care to mention virtually, the younger ones did better, which was a sign of, if you like, the leveling up of their families and their communities and the fact that they were getting better access to services than the older ones had done at the same age. Um, so the older ones were not accessing school as much. The older ones were doing working much harder and had more, you know, familial responsibilities and so on. However, for the first time ever with the phone surveys that have been done during the COVID pandemic, the younger ones have not fared better than the old ones at the, mm -hmm. did at the same age, which is, to my mind, an indication of just how much this particular cohort have been you know, brought down by this pandemic. And these are young people now um, on the sort of cusp of leaving education, entering the labor market. So they've not managed to get jobs. They've not had stable incomes. They've not had secure livelihoods. They've not necessarily managed to finish their schooling because it was the schools were closed and so on. And so you've seen a reversal of what was 
previously a very positive trend um, across the, all four of the countries. And as I mentioned before, that's even though Vietnam was very much less affected initially by COVID, the pandemic itself, mm -hmm. um, than say India and, and Peru, where, where it's been absolutely horrendous. So who knows, there, there's going to be more research into the future. And I hope that that trend doesn't continue because obviously that's got huge consequences for that whole generation of, of, of young people. Regarding Hefting Group, I want to say we have a problem of getting Israeli Arab sample in Israel. It mainly has to do with technical problems, you know, uh, population is having uh, computers, so are willing to cooperate, etc. I'm not go into it. The companies that we are working with don't have good enough Arab, Israeli Arab sample. So one of the main shortages or limitation of our studies is that they are not included. However, at the beginning of the pandemic, we got uh, one uh, Israeli Arab sample. And uh, as we expected regarding minority group, their situation is much worse compared to the Jewish. And it's including almost all uh, indicators, including resilience, uh, community, individual, national, not to talk about, of course, and uh, well-being, etc., etc. And I think it's very important, of course, not only to compare between uh, countries or uh, cultures, but also in, uh, comparing communities or minorities as much as we can. And, uh, and as I mentioned, we have a technical problem that we have to start to think about resilience in worldwide point of view. If we take, for example, the most threatening crisis, which is climate change, we need to organize ourselves so we can compare different culture and countries and we should cooperate together not only measuring resilience in Israel or in England, but across the world. It's a, it's a great challenge, but we have great challenge ahead of us. And we will be need much more to use uh, researching resilience. And that concludes the time we have for today's podcast. I'd like to thank our panel once again for being here and sharing their points of view. And thanks to you, our audience, for listening. Please join us again next month where we will be discussing community resilience over COVID. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities and organisations dedicated to developing high quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to understanding of and quality of resilience research and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.